a fallout shelter somewhere under Seattle, Washington, is the show you've been waiting for. Get ready to join your hosts, John and Kendrick, as they talk comics, movies, and more. Now here's Spoiler Country! Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on scpod.net. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Join the cult of the Spoilerverse and welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley. And over there, way, way over there is Casey T. Allen. And today... Time to get some solid dick from the Spoiler Boy. <laughs> you totally broke my flow, but that was fucking funny. <laughs> so today on the show is Peter David. Or is it Peter Allen David? It's Peter David in the comics. Peter Allen David does friends. Yeah, and it's you'll see his initials pad a lot. Uh, this guy, what has he not done when it comes to the comic book world? He was a salesman. He was yeah. a writer. Yeah, he's edited. He's done everything. He has. He was one of the uh, one of the uh, the writers on Marvel vs. DC or DC vs. Marvel, depending on what side you go on. Yeah. Um, him and uh, um, Ron Mars did that. He's and you two, done a lot of stuff. You two had the the. Well, you guys had the awesome time of actually interviewing him. How'd it go? Oh, it was great. He he came ready to talk. He had so many stories to share. Yeah. And you know, even though we we talked for for quite a while, I, I don't even know that we delved down as far as we could have. It came to a point where we we're like, we're taking up way too much of your time. We're gonna have to tap out right now. But geez, Louise, that man has a ton of things to share, and I'd love to get him back on. So I edited these episodes. Yeah. And so when I listened to him as I was editing them, and when you edit an episode, you get really in you can get really in depth because you're 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 getting down to a finite and trying to, you know, take out coughs, sneezes, sniffles, uh, maybe too many ums in the world. And so you really kind of get into that episode in a lot of ways more than you do uh, when you just sit and listen to it, which is interesting. The one thing I can tell everybody to, you know, if you have a desire to be in the comic book world, really listen to this guy. He has an understanding of how books are sold, what the industry is doing wrong now, what they should be thinking about doing for the future. Uh, he, this guy's always thinking about comic books because you could tell he loves what he does. Oh, for sure. He's a he's a, a big fan of the media and a big fan of, of of people around him too. And like he said, we talked to him for two hours. This is a two part episode, and we didn't even get to talk about some of the biggest things he'd done in his career. We got through a lot of stuff, but we we're just kind of going through stuff. And all of us were like, "Man, it's midnight," and he's still going. And he would have kept going if Casey and I weren't like, "We need to go to bed." Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, should we sit and listen to Peter David in his own words? Let's do it.
yeah, so you you started off uh, in in the eighties yep. with with Marvel, correct? Uh, that's correct. And uh, so, how, how was that working for working in the bullpen in the eighties? I didn't. Oh, you did. You you did sales department stuff, right? Exactly. I was the assistant direct sales manager and eventually the direct sales manager of Marvel Comics. And at the time, there was a huge schism between editorial and direct sales. Um, editorial was very suspicious of me working for them. And uh, Carol Kalish, who was my boss, wasn't all that thrilled about the fact that I was doing work for editorial. The editorial attitude was pretty simple. If you were a creative person, you worked for editorial. If you were not a creative person, you worked for sales or advertising or something like that. And if you worked for sales or advertising, you could not be creative because if you were, you'd be working for editorial. You know, it's fairly circular reasoning, but they were perfectly happy with that. And then in came this guy from direct sales who was writing comic books that fans loved and were selling well and that initially did not go over very well at editorial interesting when you when you first started writing in that for marvel what was what was that like like what well, was the process it was it was it was really interesting it was very entertaining i mean you have to understand that long before i was a pro i was a fan of these characters i mean i was a comic book fan for as long as i can remember so the concept that I was now coming in and writing the adventures of Spider-Man, a character who I had enjoyed for many years, it was thrilling. I mean, indeed, the fact that the first character that I got to write was Spider-Man put a lot of noses out of joining editorial because the philosophy was Spider-Man was our flagship character. He was the guy that you worked for years to work your way up to. You don't just start on Spider-Man. The fact that I wound up getting Spider-Man was a combination of a number of events that really did not sit well with a lot of people in editorial. That's why I was not among the people who was howling when, uh, what, J.J. Abrams' son uh, wound up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? He said, oh, my God, J.J. Abrams, his son, is writing Spider-Man, and he's never written Spider-Man, and that's, you know, that's unheard of. They should be able to just come in and write Spider-Man. It's like, yeah, they were saying the exact same thing when this guy in direct sales came in and started writing Spider-Man. Who the hell is he to start writing, you know, to begin writing with <laughs> Spider-Man? Indeed, the editor of the book, Jim Owsley, who put those noses out of joint by hiring me, fired me off of Spider-Man. Basically, in order to try and save his job. The only reason I wound up getting to write The Hulk was that Bob Harris, who was the editor, could not find anyone else to write it. He went to every writer. He went to That's every nice. editor. He went to every writer. He went to every editor. Nobody wanted to touch the book. And, so, you know, so when I when he offered me the this, this series, I said, aren't you worried you're going to get pushback from the other people in the editorial? And he said, no, nobody else wants to write the whole. So, you know, no one's going to object to you because <laughs> nobody else was interested in touching the character. So, you know, OK, well, that worked for me. And while all this was going on, um, you, Marvel itself was having some really, really strong titles. And you being the, the you know, new kid on the block taking, taking these titles, do you think you kind of had to to – work extra hard to 
to kind of prove yourself in that role as a writer? Well, I don't think I had to work extra hard. I just had to do the best that I could do as a writer. It's my job to provide publishable stories that entertain and ideally sell to as many people as possible. That's the job, whether you're a guy in direct sales or you're a career writer. That's what you are expected to do, and that's what I did. I can tell you, though, that as the direct sales manager, I gave no preferential treatment to the comic books that I was writing. There indeed was suspicion on the editorial side that I was using my position to unfairly push my comic books, which was not an attitude that I readily understood because we all worked for the company. So if the books sell well, we all benefit from that. You know, it wasn't like I was pushing my books at the to the exclusion of other people's title, but that reasoning didn't really go over very well in editorial. So I did almost nothing to promote my books at all. We didn't do any advertising for my stuff. I didn't. We didn't do any uh, campaigns or anything like that. I just wrote the best stories that I could, and I was very pleased to see that my stories took off, that people liked what I was producing. It also helped, even after I left the direct sales department and became a full-time writer, that I still had access to sales figures um, because, you know, my friends in sales would get me that information every month. And it was very helpful because if I saw that sales were starting to dip, I would say, okay, it's time to do something really radical and shake things up (laughs) in order to bring people back on board, which I noticed happened basically like every four years or so. I had four years worth of stories before things would start to to dip. And so every four years or so, I would radically shake up the Hulk status just in order to bring sales back up. Were you able to utilize that kind of the, the way that happened in the other titles that you did on down the road? Did you kind of look for patterns like that? No, no. Because no, that, that's, that's uh, fascinating to be able to marry the, the marketing side and yeah. the, that, that's amazing. Well, thank and, you. I mean, well, the th- the, you know, the problem was later on, like by the time I was doing X Factor and all those other books, the people who I was friends with in sales had moved out and the people who were in sales didn't know me from a hole in the wall and didn't want to provide the information. So I'm going, OK, fine, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, and then I was just kind of doing the best that I could. So while, while you were in Incredible Hulk, you had just a bevy of just insanely talented artists to compliment yeah. your work. Yes. Um, what I know you can't play favorites or anything. Is there anyone that really just George Perez? Oh, of course, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm future kind of geeking out here. Future Imperfect set the bar against which I judge pretty much every other concept. <laughs> I don't blame you. Well, George is very much a writer's artist. I mean, he will, I mean, for example, everyone remembers the big two-page splash shot of Rick Jones's trophy room. And what I said when I was describing that was I said, you know, this is Rick Jones's trophy room. These are the things that he must have in the that he must have in the trophy room. Wolverine's skeleton, the Silver Surfer's board, Thor's hammer, and Captain America's shield. Because I knew that I was going to be using those in the climactic fight with the maestro. And I said, everything else, you know, and then you can put in whatever you want. That was and Chekhov's gun, basically. What? That was your, your version of Chekhov's gun. 
Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I put those in. I set them up because I knew I was going to use those in, in book two. But I said, you know, and then I said to George, and everything else you want to put in, go ahead. And he put in just a metric shit ton of stuff. I'm looking at it right now. I think I see like a uh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Doom's I mean, mask. Everything. It's got Doctor it's got Doctor Strange's cape, which is still levitating. It's got Archie Andrews's Riverdale <laughs> sweater. I mean, it's got freaking everything. Um the, 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 oh, no, the only other thing that I said later on had to be in there was Betty Banner's Ashes. Oh, God. Um, and it was great because I said uh, the dialogue I put, you know, she's right. She's over there right behind the wasp. And it was George's idea to make the wasp's case of ashes much smaller than everybody else's, which, you know, makes sense when you think about it. You probably, oh, I see it right now. Yeah, I see that. It's really funny. <laughs> I mean, he put in he put in Tom Servo and Crow T Robot from Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's insane. Every possible artifact in the entirety of comic books is in that damn trophy room. I think I see Flash's helmet in the or uh, helm or whatever yeah. in the back. It's if you Man. think you see it, it's probably there. Yeah, that that's amazing. It is. That's all George. I mean. I've always been, you know, very, very upfront about that. People praise me for that, you know, for that, for that trophy, ro trophy room. But it's like ninety nine percent George. <laughs> so when you when you write, do you write for the artists that you have, or do you just have like this is how I do a script? And I generally, I generally try to figure out what the writer, what the artist's strengths are, and then cue my writing to take advantage of it. Um, it sometimes takes me a few issues to figure out what those strengths are. Um, for instance, I'll, I'll give you off the top of my head. When I was writing Captain Marvel, you know, I was trying to analyze what Chris Cross's strengths were. And what I discovered was that he wasn't that great with figures. He wasn't that great with action stuff. Um, what he was really good at was making people look totally nuts. I mean, you know, Rick Jones looked insane. Captain Marvel looked insane, you know. You know, they, they would just get these weird looks on their face and they look crazy. And I thought, you know something? I should just have Captain Marvel go completely bug nuts crazy. That'll play right into Chris's wheelhouse. And it did. It it absolutely did. That's why I had Captain Marvel go nuts. Indeed, the problem was, was that what I didn't know is that Chris was going to then leave after about six issues. And then we brought in other artists who had their own strengths, but none of them were as good as making people look insane as Chris was. So people are so fans love the story for the first six issues, but after that, they were going, "No, you know what? We're, you know, for some reason, we're really not crazy about it anymore." Well, it's because I lost the artist. So after after the Hulk, you you went over did Dread Star Dread Star rather with uh, Jim Starlin. Yes, and. And then went into the um, the new universe line. Not not too long after that, yep. how was your experience working with Jim Shooter? Was that uh, and that that whole line itself was that an interesting thing to do? Well, Did I was, uh, you know, I, I I started off in the new universe writing a comic book that was probably the comic book that I was the least equipped to write. It was called Mark Hazard Merc. I know nothing about Mercs, nothing about Silver <laughs> Fortune. You know, I read up on Mercs as much as I could to try and get as much information as I could. I mean, the only reason I did it was that 
the editor, Jim Owsley, who'd gotten in my start in comic books, needed me to come in because I think it was Doug Murray was supposed to write it. And then he bowed out at the last moment. So I stepped in to try and help Jim. But I, you know, I did the best I could. But it's not the work that I'm really proud of. So, yeah, I was I was part of the new universe at the beginning. But I was not a big part. And I wrote like four issues of Merck and then was... He brought in somebody else, and I was very happy about that. It's like, oh, good. Good, I can stop writing this for Cock the Book. Although it, it did help me with one thing. Bill Moomy read Mark Hazard and Merck and loved it. And he actually sent me a fan letter that, that we printed in the book. And we became friends after that. So, you know, that was a benefit. I didn't really come into uh, the new universe until about halfway through the run when uh, the previous writer, I think it was Archie Goodwin, who wrote Justice, uh, left the title, and they brought me in to take over Justice. And I wound up taking the book in an insanely different direction from what it had been for the first half of the title. And I was really kind of pleased with the stuff I came up with. But the point at which I came on to New Universe, Shooter wasn't even really involved with it anymore. Oh, indeed, for real? Oh, yeah. Indeed, the main creative force on it at that point was John Byrne. And Byrne absolutely hated Shooter. I mean, he wanted to do stuff in the new universe that he knew was just going to piss the Shooter the hell off. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, That's... so you know, he, he wanted to, to you know, that was one of, the re one of the reasons we totally wound up changing directions on pretty much all of the new universe books because John was instigating us into taking it in different directions to try and get it as far away from what Shooter had come up with in the first place. Where did you Shooter go after uh, after he had left that line? I honestly don't recall. Oh, okay, man, it, he is a fascinating character to me. But I've also heard a lot of head spotting back in the day. But and I think it when maybe Shooter, some of it was because he was so Shooter young. Was fired from Marvel Comics. Burn had a party at his house and burned him in effigy. Oh God, <laughs> that's uh. Jim that's, was not well liked by. A lot of people. I mean, the thing was that there were a lot of positive things that, that Jim did at Marvel. I mean, editorial was really kind of a mess until Jim came in and changed things. And you I mean when I was when I was a fan, I'd be reading books and all of a sudden they'd be dropping in reprints for no particular reason because people weren't getting their their hitting their deadlines. And and Jim changed all that. Oh wow. Uh, so he did he did a lot of positive stuff, but Ultimately, Jim's major mistake was that he took on Jim Galton and Mike Hobson, the president and vice president of Marvel Comics. And the bottom line is, if you take on your bosses, you better win. Yeah, yeah. And, and Jim took them on, and he did not win. And that's why he was fired from Marvel. And the guy is so fascinating to me because he, he came in when he was, what, like 14? And then took know. on... An executive role like that, it, it blows my mind that he was able to actually whip some butts into shape to get some comics made. And then so after that, you, you went into uh, you did a, a really good run on X Factor and okay. you did Spider-Man 2099, which yeah. so that was kind of around the time that I was getting really heavy into comics. OK. And that series blew my mind. I loved it. Oh, thank you. And the, in fact, the the whole 2099 run was uh, kind of a favorite of mine. Are you happy that those characters are kind of being rediscovered today? Oh, yeah. I mean, Steve Wacker was leaving 
uh, Marvel editorial, and he did a a farewell letter. And he mentioned that uh, Marvel was going to be that that they had someone working on a Spider-Man 2099 title, and the whole of fandom. <clears throat> excuse me, hold on. I have a hot toddy with me, man. I know exactly what. You're <laughs> the whole of fandom spoke with one voice, which is kind of unusual for fandom. And the whole of fandom said we would totally buy a Spider-Man 2099 comic book as long as Peter David is writing it. <laughs> Which was amusing because I wasn't writing it. I mean, I heard about it at the same time everybody else did when Wacker wrote about it. They were going to be having some other guy write it. And fandom's reaction made Marvel go, uh, maybe we should get Peter to write it. And the editor contacted me and, and she said, you know, would you be interested in coming back to write Spider-Man 2099? And I had just gotten done sending out a whole bunch of emails to people who were writing me saying that I wasn't writing it. So I said to her, yeah, OK, I'd be interested. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to write it. And she said, good. Um, we need a five page story by this Friday. They were going to be running in, I think it was Spider-Man 700. And then we're going to need the first script by the end of next week. Now, keep in mind, I had not given the character any thought in 10 years. So, you know, I really had to hit the ground running. And I said, why do you need it so fast? And she said, well, it's coming out in July. And I said, it's May. <laughs> and she said, yes, you're very late. <laughs> you know, in the same freaking conversation in which she offered me the book, she informed me of how behind I'd fallen. <laughs> now, I don't know who the hell they had plan to write this thing in july but you know i don't know where they were in the production of it but either they had done work that marvel then decided to just shit can or they were just really falling far behind but in any event i went okay and i wrote it that's amazing and and that it really says a lot about the quality of of what you can bring to that character when people go no this guy has to write it yeah <laughs> now, they're, now they're doing a new 2099 line of which i'm not a part so i will be very interested to see how it sells speaking of of comics that that you wrote and and had a really you know fan favorite run of what do you think about the the new immortal hulk line or, or the the comic uh that's going on right now i know i, I know it's not I, your hulk i, I think yeah it is they're doing the maestro oh yeah yeah good point I mean, it is it basically they're doing an, a lengthy origin of the maestro. Okay, that's fine. You know, I mean, it's, you know, they're calling him the Devil Hulk. They can call him whatever he wants. But as far as I'm concerned, that's my guy. Yeah, yeah. Did, does it make you, uh, does it still, does it give you any type of satisfaction knowing that people are looking at what you did, you know, what, almost 30 years ago and go uh, and, and picking it back up and, and picking up your breadcrumbs and making something else out of it. Sure, why not? <laughs> I mean, you know, so, I, um, you know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things I like about it. There's some things that annoy me. I mean, they brought back Doc Samson. They had him in a cemetery that had crosses in the background. I'm going, guys, I wrote a freaking Hanukkah story for this. <laughs> what is he doing yeah. in the cemetery with crosses, for God's sake? That would piss me off. You know, I'm sorry. I'm a little annoyed by that, but, but other than that, it's fine. A after that, you, you did a, a really fantastic Aquaman series. Oh, thank and you. It's yeah, I, I was really pleased when Zack Snyder put up the picture of Jason Momoa <laughs> as Aquaman. And the modern-day fans were going, 
that doesn't look anything like Aquaman. And the older fans are going, no, that's Peter David's Aquaman. See, that's what that's what I was thinking. Yeah, exactly. You're the guy that made him not the guy who is goofy from Super Friends. I mean, you. Well, that's why my name is in the closing credits of Aquaman, which I'm very pleased about. That that's that's pretty awesome. Um, uh, EC actually invited me out to the screening. They didn't pay my way, but they they invited me out to to the opening of Aquaman in Los Angeles. That's awesome. Did, were you able to go? Yeah. Yeah. Where are you? Where are you located? New York. Okay. Okay. See, I'm. Um. If you haven't guessed, I'm in the deep south. So, um. <laughs> and hadn't guessed, but in my defense, I hadn't given it any thoughts. So. <laughs> I, I I try to to leave the accent in the other room when I come in here to do uh the podcast, but it oh. it comes out. All right. Um, <laughs> it used to be that uh, you collected comics to know the whole story, and now everything's essentially like reset and overwritten every two years. Um, I don't know about that, but yeah, there, there does seem to be, particularly with DC, that seems to be uh, very prevalent. How do you feel that's affected storytelling in comics, and and do, uh, does it? Well, the the resetting thing is much more a DC thing than it is Marvel. Oh yeah, yeah. Mar- Marvel doesn't do the you know the reset or the rebirth or the you know. I feel like when they do stuff like that, they're basically sending a message to the fans. And they're saying, you know, all these stories that you've invested your time and your interest and your enthusiasm in, they don't count. They never happen. They don't matter. And I think that's, you know, if nothing else, considering how much comic books freaking cost. Oh, yeah. Being told that all the money you spent on them is pointless because those stories no longer factor into the mix. I think that's really a stupid way to do things. I think you're really sending a direct message to the fans that they are wasting their time reading these books because it can very well be that a year or two from now, a story's going to come forward that says, oh, these stories that you read, they don't count. I mean, say what you will, for instance, about the whole thing where Marvel did away with Peter and Mary Jane being married, okay? You can agree with it, you can disagree with it, but at least we didn't just say, oh, you know, the wedding, it never happened. No, it did happen, but nobody remembers it, and it was undone by Mephisto. But at least yeah. it's in continuity. The With the lack of, of continuity now, you know, with everything resetting, do you think it's compromised long storm storytelling and, and kind of, well, I, I guess you've already said it's disincentivized readers. I don't think the long storm. I don't think that long form storytelling really exists much anymore because it used to be that if a title was canceled, that was a really big deal. Yeah, I was like, oh my god, this title's been canceled. Now titles are canceled all the time, constant. They're they're they are canceled and restarted incessantly. I think part of that stems from the ordering cycles of comic books because what you know let's say you know marvel's going to put out a new number 1 okay the comic and you 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 own a comic book store and let's say that you order 50 copies of issue number 1 okay then you have to order issue number 2 but you haven't seen issue number 1 so you order 30 copies of issue number 2 then you order issue number three, but you haven't seen one and two yet, so you order 20 copies. And this is happening all over the nation. 
which basically means that a book is selling numbers so low that by issue three, the book's going to wind up getting canceled because the sales fi- the sales figures are going to go on a downward spiral, and the book's going to wind up getting canceled before issue one is in the st- is in the stores. You know, now now they do try to compensate for that with reorders and such. But when the bigwigs are making decisions about what books they're going to keep around, you really have to be high in sales in the short term because in the long the long term doesn't really exist anymore. You know, they always look at the last couple of months and if sales are dropping, they cancel you or they just cancel you and then just restart you with a new number one. You know, we have two. We have a new Thor book coming out. How many new Thor books has, has have come out in the past two to three years? Yeah, right. An excessive number of number ones. Why? Because people order big on number one. You know, you know, the 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 comic book companies have been trying to cater to both the whims of the fans and the, the ordering habits of of the uh, of of the comic book stores. I mean, honest to God, if if I were put in charge of comic books, the first thing I would do, I do away with issue numbers. That's it. Done. You know, don't have issue numbers. You know, you'd be buying right now the January 2020 issue of Spider-Man. That's it. How do you know which one it is? It's January 2020. You don't really need anything other than that. Who cares which issue of Time magazine you're buying? Correct. You know, who cares about which issue of TV Guide this is? You know, screw that. It's a magazine. Just treat, you know, just number it as... Just refer to it as being a monthly and just do away with numbers altogether. Then people are just going to have to really start ordering it on the basis of writer, artist, and story elements, which is what it used to be ordered on the basis of, but which has gone pretty much totally away. Do you ever... Sometimes with the Marvel titles, because they don't do the resets, there is such a massive weight of continuity that must be maintained... Do you think that that gets in the way of of good storytelling sometimes? It can for the fans. It doesn't for the writers. You know, I mean, continuity is a perfectly reasonable guideline, but you don't have to be absolutely slavish to it. Um, You know, we we just try to tell the most interesting stories we can. If if there's a continuity, I mean, if I have a continuity question, if there's something that I don't remember when it happened or what happened... I just go on the internet and I say, hey, guys, when did this happen? Or when did such and such happen? I will get 20 answers immediately from the fans. (laughs) The fans remember all this stuff. With writers, we write this stuff and then we just tend to forget about it. You know, we're, we're we're on to the new story. So remembering what we did beforehand can be a real pain in the ass. But the fans help help us to maintain this stuff. I mean... For instance, when we were redesigning uh, the Ben Riley costume, okay, Mark Badger really started out with a really nice outfit, and editorial wanted him to change this and change that and change some other damn thing, and he made about twenty changes until he finally came up with the finalized costume, like the hood costume. Yeah, with- the hood costume, and the fans went batshit, and a number of fans pointed out that it was almost identical to the costume of Spider-Side, a character that all of us, including Mark Badger, had completely forgotten about. (laughs) 
And so in a subsequent in a in you know, and what happened was so many fans hated that costume, the editorial came to me and they said, get him out of the costume, just put him back as an original outfit. And I had a couple of fans, I had a group of fans who were cosplaying as in various incarnations of Spider-Man start criticizing uh his outfit, Ben Riley's outfit, saying all the stuff that fans had been saying online. Including the fact that it looked like Spider-Side's outfit, which was great because this issue came out and fans who were unaware of the timing of when I'd written it said, oh, my God, Peter David is so psychic that he knew what we were going to say (laughs) and incorporated into the comic book. No, I didn't. Well, you you were actually able to, to revisit that old costume not long ago. Yeah. Just a few years ago. Yeah. With, uh. With your return to to Ben Riley, yeah, exactly. But you know, the I mean, the fans just hated the costume. And went, <laughs> okay, fine, we'll change it back to to the previous one. Now shut the hell up, which they did, and they felt that they contributed, which they had. You know, Marvel always says that the fans are the real editors of the series, and I can tell you that that is absolutely true. If enough fans say that they hate something, Marvel will go. Okay, we need to change this really quickly. I mean, it has to be pretty uniform. I mean, th- there are some things that fans will bitch about, and you know, and we will take it into account. And there will be some things that we'll we'll we will ignore. For instance, I created Captain America twenty ninety nine, and I decided to make it a female. And it occurred to me, I said, you know, wait a minute. When Steve Rogers took the Super Soldier formula. He became this really bulky guy. So I think that Captain America, if Captain America 2099 is going to take the super soldier serum, the same thing should happen. She should look like a female bodybuilder. She shouldn't look like Wonder Woman. She should look like a heavily muscled woman. And I actually got reference of bodybuilders and I sent that to the artist. And the artist drew exactly what I wanted him to. And what was interesting to me was that fan reaction split right, and I mean this completely, it split right down gender line. All the fanboys hated Captain America 2099. Oh, she looks like like a bodybuilder. She looks terrible. She doesn't look sexy at all. And all the fangirls loved her. Yeah, no shit. She's a soldier. Like, of course she's going to be tough. The, all the fangirls are going, finally, a muscled woman who looks like a muscled woman. Thank freaking God. We love this character. You know, the fans were just so happy to see a muscled woman. And I just really thought that was fascinating how it split right along the gender line. But it really did. So going back to the topic of fandom, um, so I, I have a buddy that uh, that met you a few years ago because I, I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to be talking to Peter David later. And uh, my, my pal Patrick Healy, who is a, a writer, uh, he was like, oh, I met him a few years ago. He's super nice. And he w- he wanted me to ask, on the, basically the flip side of that, ha- has the, the interaction with fans and the, um, the internet backlash for certain things, has that – shape storytelling and stifled creativity just from fear of that backlash. No, no, you nope. can't, you can't, you can't let fear of backlash impede your creative vision. For instance, I decided to firmly establish that Monet was Muslim. Why not? 
she grew she grew up in a country that's ninety eight percent Muslim. So the odds of her being Muslim were huge. Now, did I know that fans were, that there would be fans who would go batshit crazy because I was establishing that Monet was Muslim? Sure, I did. Did you think that it I made me hesitate one iota? No. When I established that Shatterstar and Richter were lovers, did I anticipate that there, there would be some hostility to that? Yes, I did. Interestingly enough, the vast majority of fans, much to my surprise, loved it. They loved it. I mean, you know, we we got exactly one angry letter. <laughs> one. We got deluged with positive mail, and we ran, and we got one angry letter. We wrote, we ran the angry letter to, you know, because we want to have everybody's opinion in there. We then got deluged with letters from people who were furious with the asshole who'd written the angry letter. <laughs> That's the, amazing. The real, oh, well, the really entertaining thing was that, you know, when we did the story, and you know, the, it ran for a new cycle, which was fine. And then Rob Liefeld, God bless him, stepped forward and said, no, 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 no. Shatterstar is not gay. No, no, no. He's like an ancient Greek soldier, which sent everyone into hysterics because apparently <laughs> nobody ever told Rob that on the night before they would go into battle, the ancient Greek soldiers would stuck the, the boy with their weapons. Um, he, Rob was unaware of this little fact, but apparently the whole of fandom knew this, and those people who didn't know it found it out, and Rob got clobbered. <laughs> so I thought that that was very amusing. I'm sure Rob did not think it was amusing, but I thought it was entertaining. But, you know, you cannot, cannot let anticipation of fan reaction affect what you do you know you you have to write what's best for the characters and what's best for the story you can anticipate what fan reaction will be you can ready yourself you can prepare yourself but you absolutely cannot let fears of political correctness or hostility or whatever shape the stories that you write if you do that's the beginning of the end you know you you have to give people what you feel is going to be the most interesting stories. I mean, when George Lucas created Star Wars, I can tell you there was absolutely no demand whatsoever for a space opera. None. You know, I mean, the movie studios referred to it as George Lucas's, you know, stupid Flash Gordon project. <laughs> I mean, uh, there was a lawyer at 20th Century Fox who happily reported to his bosses that he had saved them, I think it was $40,000. How did he save him $40,000? He didn't pay George Lucas money so that Fox would hold on to marketing rights. He let, you know, rights to toys, that kind of thing. You know, he let, you know, he let George Lucas hold on to all the rights to toys because he figured, who's going to want to buy Star Wars toys? Billion dollar mistake. <laughs> yeah, that lawyer was fired subsequently. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, you you have to give people not what they're asking for. You know, I mean, you, you have to come up with stuff that nobody's asking for and then make them want more. In, in the studio's defense, I mean, why, why make another space opera when you've already made the amazing 
piece of cinema called Logan's Run. (laughs) (laughs) Logan's Run wasn't exactly space opera, nor was Logan's Run, I think, particularly successful. But um, it is in my heart, Peter David. It is in my heart. (laughs) You had a crush on Jenny Algeter, so. Dude, who didn't? (laughs) So um, speaking speaking of films, Oblivion. Oh, God. (laughs) It's, It's a fun movie, man. And the second one is is great. Oh yeah. How, how was how was writing the screenplay for that? And and how did you how did you end up on that project? Was that something that you were like, oh, I want to I want to knock this out, or was it pr- proposed to you? Oh no, it was oh no. Uh, um, Charlie Band's outfit, um, Full Moon. They had all Oblivion was a project they were developing in house. They already had a script for it, and they hated the script. They had a fundamental idea of one or two of the characters, but that was about it. And they came to me, and they said, we want you to write Oblivion. It's cowboys and aliens in outer space. And they said, we already have a script. I said, can I read that script? They said, no. They said, no. They said, no. We don't want you to be influenced at all by this script. So pretty much like 99% of that script was what I came up with. And I just I just had a great old time. I mean, you know, I just I just love the idea of having a pacifistic sheriff who, you know, is empathetic and so doesn't want to kill or even hurt anybody. You know, I, I thought I thought that that would be a really interesting uh, you know, angle from which to take this. And I just had an absolute ball with that. I mean, um, and the director, Sam Irvin, was terrific. Sam's a great guy. And Full Moon actually spent some money on Oblivion, which is amazing because the first two films I did for them, Transfers 4 and 5, each had a budget of like 97 cents or whatever the hell it was. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. They, Notoriously very thrifty films. But, I mean, the, the Transfers movies were great. Transfers 5 was 65 minutes long, and 10 minutes of that was a recap of the previous film. I mean, they cut all the action. I mean, when, when you're talking about writing for Full Moon, I like to I, I like to send you back to like the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, <laughs> if Raiders of the Lost Ark was a Full Moon movie, okay, you don't have money for stuntmen. You don't have money to build a cave. You don't have money to build a giant um, rock. You don't have money for natives. Okay. This is what the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark would have been if it was a full moon movie. Indiana Jones would have been creeping through a forest. He would have fa- he would have been by himself. He would have found the statue sitting on a pedestal in the middle of the forest. He would have carefully done the switch. Then all of a sudden the camera would have begun to shake and he would have run away. That's it. <laughs> that would be the beginning of Raiders if full moon had done it. With Oblivion, they actually spent money. They had a whole old west town that was you know built that was in romania and they actually spent some money on special effects i mean we i even wrote in a giant monster for for backlash for oblivion 2 and to my astonishment they actually had a giant monster in there you know then they had a cave in there i wrote in a cave and they used the cave so i was really impressed by the fact that they actually spent money on oblivion and uh, we had a lot of fun with that. We got George Takei's Doc Valentine. I was very pleased with that. Oh yeah, you're you're a huge Trek fan, so. Oh yeah, well, I mean, I was talking to Sam Irvin about because 
we were originally going to have John Aston was going to be playing Doc Valentine, and then John pulled out of it. And and Sam and I were talking, and he said, "Who do you think we could get?" And I said, "What about George Takei? George is a friend of mine." And I thought, "Well, this would be perfect for him." And Sam said, "You know George Takei?" I said, "Yeah." He says, "Offer him the part. Just offer him the part. He doesn't have to read for it. He, he, if he wants it, it's his." And I called up George and I told him about this role, and he said, "You know, I don't know. It's three months in Romania." And I said to him, "George." When was the last time that you played a role that was not specifically written to be Asian? And without hesitation, George said, 1963. And I said, wouldn't it be nice? I said, Doc Valentine is not written to be Asian. He's just the town drunken doctor. (laughs) And he said, send me the script. And I sent him the script. And three days later, he signed on. So, you know. The, fit, the the biggest fondness I have, biggest fondness I have in terms of remembering Oblivion, was that my father was in. Oh, that's awesome! That's well, you amazing. Have, you have to understand, my father came to America as you know to to go to college, but he really wanted to come to America to be a movie star. It never happened. He, did, I mean, he did some television, but he never got to be in a movie. And. A uh, full moon offered to fly both me and a fr- and a, and a companion out to Romania for two weeks, and I brought my dad. And I said to Sam Irvin, "Can my dad have a cameo in the film?" And Sam said, "Well, he'd have to grow a beard because I want to have all the men in Oblivion have beards, with the exception of the sheriff. I want everyone to be bearded." And I said, "I have never seen him with anything more than five o'clock shadow in the entirety of my life." But for to be in a movie, he will absolutely grow a beard. And I told my dad he needed to grow a beard. I met him. I met up with him at the airport six weeks later. He looked like freaking Tevya. So yeah, he grew a beard. He looked pretty good in it too. And we were going to have him be a customer in Maddie's store. Now we had a character in the film called Mister Gaunt. Mister Gaunt was the town uh, funeral director, and he was psychic. So whenever somebody was going to die, he would always show up and wait for the person to die so you could catch the body so it wouldn't get banged up. The problem was, was that therefore, anytime Mr. Gaunt happened to walk into any place in the town, people would just get the hell out of there. <laughs> so I had, I had my father being a customer in Maddie's store while Maddie's talking to the sheriff, and Mr. Gaunt walks in. Mr. Gaunt was played by Carl Stryken huge, towering actor. He played Lurch in the uh, Adams Family movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he walked in, and my I, my idea was that my father would take one look at him and just get that run the hell out of the store. And so we're about to shoot the scene, and my father says to me, what's my line? I went, what? <laughs> said, what do I say? And I said, hold on a moment. And I went over to Sam, and I said, my father wants to know what his line is. And Sam said, you're the writer. Give him a line. And I went, okay. And I went back to my father and I said, okay, I want you to say, I think I'll come back later. And my father said, okay. And the thing is, we shot the master take. And my father says, I think I'll come back later and runs out. We finished doing the master take. And the director says, okay, uh, we're going to want to go in now for Gunter's close up. And you have to understand, my father had been waiting 40 years. You know, that's how long he since he had come to the United States, he'd been waiting about 40 years for someone to say, it's time for Gunter's close-up. And he goes, <laughs> I have a close-up? And Sam, yes. 
<laughs> and the funny thing was, when we just done the master take, my dad just said, I think I'll come back later and ran out. When he shot his close up, he stammered. Why did he? And he stuttered. Why did he stammer and stutter? More screen time. Right? <laughs> because if you're saying, I, I, I think I'll come back later, you're going to be on screen for a few more seconds. And he and they used his close up. So if you go watch Backlash and see a gray bearded guy saying, I think I'll come back later. Yeah, that's my dad. The, the funny coda to this is that, you know, I took a lot of pictures there. And this is before cell phones. So we had this thing called film. And <laughs> I brought it to a place that would, would develop the film. And they developed it. And I go to pick the film up. And the guy says to me, these were taken on a movie set, weren't they? And I said, yeah, they were. And he said, I thought so, because I recognized one of the actors. And he shows me this group shot that has George Takei in it and Carl Strike in it. And who does he say he recognizes? My dad. <laughs> I know this guy. I said, no, no. <laughs> he said, no, I do. I've seen him in like several movies. And I went, no, you haven't. But, uh, you know, that's my dad. You know, he didn't even have to be in movies to be recognized as having been in movies. Did he did he get a SAG card from that? No, he did not. So it, it was not a SAG film. So. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So with talking about your 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 dad and your parents, okay. I, I was talking to Jerry Conway the other day and um, he said that, you know, his folks kind of came from overseas, I, be I believe, as well. They always kind of worry. We all have people who came from overseas. Oh, yeah. yeah. They always worried about him working as, as a writer professionally. Was that ever an issue for you? Did they, did they always kind of? When I was like 18 or 19 years old, my father gave me some very good advice. He said, Peter, your hobbies are nice, but you cannot make a living out of science fiction and comic books. <laughs> and... Uh... <laughs> But the great thing is, as the years went by and I was able to make a living at science fiction comic books, my father not only had no problem with it, he loved it. I mean, when I'd have a new book come out in a bookstore, he would have my mother take pictures of him standing there pointing at the book on the shelves. That's awesome. They, whenever they would go to other countries, my father would always hit local bookstores and try and find forward editions of my books. Which, when I was writing Star Trek novels, he very frequently did. And his office at home was crammed with copies of my books in all languages. You know, I just, you know, you know, English, German, Hebrew. You know, it was it was really wonderful. It's a proud papa, man. Oh, yeah. I'm going to try and veer back to comics here. Okay. You did a, uh, a book not long ago, Fallen Angel. Yeah, started off with DC and and then went with IDW. Do you, yep. Is, are you done with that title, or are you? Uh, do you I'm, have any more plans for that character? I'm never done with anything. Because <laughs> it it really was a fascinating book, a really good concept too. I would act, I actually have a you know an idea for a whole new Fallen Angel limited series. I can't seem to get IDW interested in publishing it. In the meantime, we have a movie version of it in development. On the oh, other really? hand, development. Yeah, on the other hand, it's been development for three years, so I really don't have any idea what to tell you about that. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it. I've heard of movies being stuck in development hell forever, and then all of a sudden, just out of the blue, yeah. Like, oh, holy smokes! Yeah. So that's what I'm hoping happens here. 
it uh it, it really is a fantastic book and um i'm glad that you you have plans to to keep on with it so uh when you end up do bringing it back out let us know man think that was a fun interview right dude i was there and it was fun to listen to again i i, I loved it <laughs> i was it. there i was there man <laughs> yeah it's a great interview you guys did an excellent job and you could tell you got, he was having fun you guys were having fun i mean casey came in clutching this one sick and ran the interview so you know hats off to you man yeah man it, it was it was an honor to be able to talk to him he uh I really liked hearing his story about his his dad on the movie set. It was uh, it that was, was a blast. really cool. And man, the thing that I don't want to get into it yet because nah. there's a second part. But let's do the um, second part then. Yeah. So, Casey, what is something that you remember from the first part that you you know from the very beginning of the interview, really talking about a lot of his comic book career that really stuck with you? Well, I had no idea he was so involved in the business side of it. Um, prior to uh him actually writing. writing and he uh looked like he he just found an opportunity and ran with it yeah what and shocked me was the fact that nobody wanted to write the hulk yeah and that's why we got it yeah. just by default which is crazy to me and he, right now his hulk run is is massive and and greatly appreciated and there, there are only a few people I think of when I think of the Hulk, and Peter David is one of the people one that I think of, one yeah, of the sure. writers that immediately comes to mind when you think of Incredible Hulk. Yeah, I think it goes to show that you definitely do not judge a book by its cover, that you give people an opportunity to show you what they can or can't do, and because, man, did he show them. He sure did, man. We get into more of his later career in the second episode, and he tells some good stories about uh, about some of the people he worked with, which is pretty fun. Yeah. All right. I think that's a show. I think that is a show. It's good for part one here, and then t- tune in next time for part two to hear more, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Okay, guys, don't forget to open the mind. And read more. <laughs> <laughs>